Section twenty nine of the Morals, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Brouwer. The Morals, Volume Two, by Plutarch, translated by several hands, corrected and revised by William W. Goodwin. A discourse concerning Socrates' Daemon, Part Two. Content, said Eucritus, but let us first see who these are that are coming, for I think I see Epimonus bringing in the stranger. Upon this motion, looking toward the door, we saw Epimonus, with friends Isimeridorus and Bacchylides, and Melissus the musician leading the way, and the stranger following, a man of no mean presence. His meekness and good nature appeared in his looks, and his dress was grave and becoming. He, being seated next to Simeus, my brother, next me, and the rest as they pleased, and all silent, Simeus, speaking to my brother, said, Well, Epimemondus, by what name and title must I salute this stranger? For those are commonly averse compliments, and the beginning of a better acquaintance. And my brother replied, His name, Simeus, is Fiana, but he is Crotonian, a philosopher by profession, no disgrace to Pythagoras' fame. For he has taken a long voyage from Italy hither, to evidence by generous actions his imminent proficiency in that school. The stranger subjoined, But you, Epimenonus, hindering the performance of the best action, for if it is commendable to oblige friends, it is not discommendable to be obliged. For a benefit requires a receiver as well as a giver, by both it is perfected and becomes a good work. For he that refuses to receive a favor, as a ball that is struck fairly to him, disgraces it by letting it fall short of the designed mark. And what mark are we so much pleased to hit or vexed to miss as a kind intentions of obliging a person that deserves a favor? It is true, when the mark is fixed, he that misses can blame nobody but himself. But he that refuses or flies a kindness is injurious to the favor in not letting it attain the desired end. I have told you already what was the occasion of my voyage? The same I would discover to all present, and make them judges in the case. For after the opposite faction had expelled the Pythagoreans and the Colonians and burned down the remains of that society in their school at Metapontum, and destroyed all but Philaus and Lysis, who, being young and nimble, escaped the flame, Philaus flying to the Lycians, whilst they are protected by his friends rose for his defence and overpowered the colonians but where lysis was for a long time nobody could tell at last gorgias the leontine sailing from greece to italy seriously told arcesus that he met and discoursed lysias at thebes arcesus being very desirous to see the man as soon as he could get a passage designed to put to sea himself but age and weakness coming on he took care that Lysias should be brought to Italy alive, if possible, but if not, the relics of his body. The intervening wars, usurpations, and seditions hindered his friends from doing it whilst he lived. But since his death, Lysias' daemon hath made very frequent and very plain discoveries to us of his death, and many that were very well acquainted with the matter have told us how courteously you received and civilly entertained him how in your poor family he was allowed a plentiful subsistence for his age 
counted the father of your sons, and died in peace. I, therefore, although a young man, and but a single person, have been said by many who are my elders, and who, having store of money, offer it gladly to you who need it, in return for the gracious friendship bestowed upon Lysis. Lysis, it is true, is buried nobly, and your respect, which is more honourable than a monument, must be acknowledged, and we quit it by this familiars and his friends. When the stranger had said this, my father wept a considerable time, in memory of Lysis, but my brother, smiling upon me, as he used to do, said, What do we do, Cephisius? Are we to give up our poverty to wealth? Yet be silent, by no means, I replied. Let us part with our old friend and the excellent breeder of our youth, but defend her cause, for you are to manage it. My dear father, said he, I have never feared that wealth would take possession of our house, except on account of Cephisius' body, for that once fine attire that he may appear gay and gaudy to his numerous company of lovers, and great supplies of food that he may be strong to endure wrestling and other exercise of the ring. But since he doth not give a poverty, since he holds fast his heredity want, like a collar, since he, a youth, prides himself in frugality, and is very well content with his present state, what need have we, and what shall we do with wealth? Shall we gild our arms? Shall we, like Nicias the Athenian, adore our shield with gold, purple, and other gaudy variety of colors, and buy for you, sir, a Milesian cloak, and for my mother a purple gown? For I suppose we shall not consume any upon our belly, or feast more sumptuously than we did before, treating this wealth as a guest of quality and honor. Away, away, son, replied my father. Let me never see such a change in our course of living. Well, said my brother, we would not lie lazily at home and watch over our unemployed riches, for then the bestower's kindness would be a trouble, and the possession infamous. What need, then, said my father, have we of wealth? Upon this account, said Epaminondas, when Jason the Felician general lately sent me a great sum of money and desired me to accept it, I was thought rude and unmannerly for telling him that he was a knave, for endeavouring, whilst he himself loved monarchy, to bribe one of democratic principles and a member of a free state. Your good will, sir, addressing the stranger, which is generous and worthy a philosopher, I accept and passionately admire but you offer physic to your friends who are in perfect health. If, upon a report that we were distressed and overpowered, you had brought men and arms to assistance, but being arrived found all in quietness and peace, I am certain you would not have thought it necessary to leave those supplies, which we did not then stand in need of. Thus, since you now came to assist us against poverty, as if you had been distressed by it, and find it very peaceable and our familiar intimate, there is no need to leave any money or arms to suppress that which gives us no trouble or disturbance. But tell your acquaintance that they use riches well, and their friends here that use poverty as well. What was spent in keeping and bearing Lysias, Lysias himself have sufficiently repaid, by many profitable instructions, and by teaching us not to think poverty a grievance. What then? said Fionor. Is it mean to think poverty a grievance? Is it not sir to fly and be afraid of riches, if no reason but a hypocritical pretense, narrowness of mind or pride prompts one to reject the offer? 
and what reason i wonder would sir refuse such attentation and creditable enjoyments as Evan london now doth but sir for your answer to the felician about this matter shows you very ready pray answer me do you think it incommendable in some cases to give money but always unlawful to receive it or are the givers and these receivers equally guilty of a fault by no means replied Edmundus. but as of anything else so the giving and receiving of money is sometimes commendable and sometimes base well then said fianor if a man gives willingly what he ought to give is not that action commendable in him yes and when it is commendable in one to give is it not as commendable in another to receive or can a man more honestly accept a gift from any one than from him that honestly bestows no well then Epimamandus, suppose of two friends one hath a mind to present the other must accept it is true in battle we should avoid that enemy who is skilful in hurling his weapon but in civilities we should neither fly nor trust back that friend that makes a kind and genteel offer and though poverty is not so grievous yet on the other side wealth is not so mean and despicable a thing very true replied epimondus but you must consider that sometimes even when a gift is honestly bestowed is more commendable who refuse it for we have many lusts and desires and the objects of those desires are many some are called natural these proceed from the very constitution of our body and tend to natural pleasures others are acquired and arise from vain opinions and mistaken notions yes these by the length of time ill habits and bad education are usually improved get strength and debase the soul more than the other natural and necessary passions by custom and care any one with the assistance of reason may free himself from many of his natural desires but sir all our arts all our force of discipline must be employed against the superfluous and acquired appetites and they must be restrained or cut off by the guidance or edge of reason for if the contrary applications of reason can make us forbear meat and drink when hungry or thirsty how much more easy it is to conquer covetousness or ambition which will be destroyed by a bare restraint from the proper objects and the non-attainment of their desired end and pray sir i know the same opinion yes replied the stranger then sir continued epimondus do you not perceive a difference between the exercise itself and the work to which the exercise relates for instance in a wrestler the work is the striving with his adversary for the crown the exercise is the preparation for, of his body by diet wrestling or the like so in virtue you must confess the work to be one thing and the exercise another very well replied the stranger then continued epimamandus let us first examine whether to abstain from the base unlawful pleasures is the exercise of continuance or the work and evidence of that exercise the work and evidence replied the stranger but is not the exercise of it such as you practice when after wrestling we have raised your appetites like a ravenous beast you stand a long while at the table covered with plenty and variety of meats and then give it to your servants to feast on whilst you offer mean and spare diet to your subdued appetites for abstinence from lawful pleasures exercised against unlawful 
Very well, replied the stranger. So, continued Epimondus, justice is exercise against covetousness and love of money. But so it is not a mere cessation from stealing or robbing our neighbor. So he that doth not betray his country or friends for gold, doth not exercise against covetousness. For the law perhaps deters and fear restrains him, but he that refuses just gain and such as the law allows, voluntary exercises and secures himself from being bribed or receiving any unlawful present. For, when great, hurtful and base pleasures are proposed, it is very hard for anyone to contain himself, who hath not often despised those which he had power and opportunity to enjoy. Thus, when base bribes and considerable advantages are offered, it will be difficult to refuse, unless he hath long ago rooted out all thoughts of gain and love of money. For other desires will nourish and increase that appetite, and he will easily be drawn to any unjust action who can scarce forbear reaching out his hand to profit the present. But he that will not lay himself open to the favors of friends and the gifts of kings, but refuses even what fortune proffers, and keeps off his appetite, that is eager after and, as it were, leaps forward to an appearing treasure, is never disturbed or tempted to unlawful actions, but have great and brave thoughts, and have command over himself, being conscious of none but generous designs, I and Caphisius, Decimius, being passionate admirers of such men, beg the stranger to suffer us to be taught and exercised by poverty, to attain that height of virtue and perfection. My brother, having finished his discourse, Simeus, nodding twice or thrice, said, Epimondus is a great man, but this Polymenus is the cause of his greatness, who gave his children the best education and bred them philosophers. But, sir, you may end the dispute at leisure amongst yourselves. As for Lysias, it is lawful to discover it. Pray, sir, do you design to take him out of his tomb and transport him into Italy? Or leave him here amongst his friends and acquaintance? who shall be glad to lie by him in the grave. And Theonor, with a smile, answered, Lysias, good Simeus, no doubt was very well pleased with the place, for Epimondus supplied him with all the things necessary and fitting. But the Patagorians have some particular funeral ceremonies, which, if anyone wants, we conclude he did not make a proper and happy exit. Therefore, as soon as we learn from some dreams that Lysias was dead, for we have certain marks to know the apparitions of the living from images of the dead. Most began to think that Lysias, dying in a strange country, was not interred with the due ceremonies, and therefore ought to be removed to Italy, that he might receive them there. I, coming upon this design, and being by the people of the country directed to the tomb, in the evening poured out my oblations and called upon the soul of Lysias to come out and direct me in this affair. The night drawing on, I saw nothing indeed, but I thought I heard a voice saying, Move not those relics that ought not to be moved. For Lysias' body was duly and religiously interred, and his soul is sent to inform another body, and committed to the care of another daemon. And early this morning, asking Epimondus about the manner of Lysias' burial, I found that Lysias taught him as far as the incommunable mysteries of our sect and that the same daemon that waited on Lysias presided over him. If I can guess at the pilot from the sailing of the ship, 
the paths of life are large but in few are men directed by the daemons when theonors had said this he looked attentively on epimondus as if he designed a fresh search into his nature and inclinations at the same instant the surgeon coming in unbound simia's leg and prepared to dress it Evelilius, entering hipposthenides extremely concerned as his very countenance discovered desired me Karen and Theocritus to withdraw into a private corner of the porch. And I asking Phileas, Have any new thing happened? Nothing new to me, he replied. For I knew and told you that Hipposthenius was a coward, and therefore begged you not to communicate the matter to him, or make him an associate. We seeming all surprised, Hipposthenius cried out, For heaven's sake, Phileas, don't say so, don't think rashness to be bravery and blinded by that mistake ruin both us and the commonwealth but if it must be so let the exiles return again in peace and Philidius, in a passion replied how many hipposthenides do you think are privy to this design thirty i know engaged and why then continued Philidius, would you singly oppose your judgment to them all and ruin those measures they have all taken and agreed to what had you to do send a messenger to desire them to return and not approach today, when even chance encouraged and all things conspired to promote the design? These words of Philidius troubled everyone, and Karen, looking very angrily upon Hipposthenides, said, Thou coward! What hast thou done? No harm, replied Hipposthenides, as I will make appear if you will moderate your passion and hear what you grey-headed equal can allege. If, Philidius, we were minded to show our citizens the bravery that sought danger and a heart that contemned life. There is day enough before us. Why should we wait till the evening? Let us take our swords presently and assault the tyrants. Let us kill, let us be killed, and be prodigal of our blood. If this may be easily performed or endured, and if it is no easy matter by the loss of two or three men to free Thebes from so great an armed power, as possess it, and to beat out the Spartan garrison. For I suppose Phileas hath not provided wine enough at his entertainment to make all Achaea's guard of fifteen hundred men drunk. Or, if we dispatch him, yet Achaeus and Heripidas will be sober and upon watch. Why are we so eager to bring our friends and families into certain destruction, especially since the enemy hath some notice of their return? For, why else should the Thespians for these three days be commanded to be in arms and follow the orders of the Spartan general? And I heard that today, after examination before Achaeus, when he returns, they design to put Aphitheus to death. And are not these strong proofs that our conspiracy discovered? Is it not the best way to stay a little until an atonement is made and the gods reconciled? For the diviners, having sacrificed an ox to Ceres, said that the burnt offering portends a great sedition and a danger to the commonwealth and besides karen there is another thing which particularly concerns you for yesterday hippodorus the son of renthes a very honest man and my good acquaintance but altogether ignorant of our design coming out of the country in my company accosted me thus karen is an acquaintance of yours hipposthenides but no great crony of mine yet if you please advise him to take heed of some imminent danger for i had a very odd dream relating to some such matter last night methought i saw his house in travail 
and he and his friends extremely perplexed fell to their prayers round about the house the house groaned and sent out some inarticulate sounds at last a raging fire broke out of it and consumed the greatest part of the city and the castle Katmea was covered all over with smoke but not fired this was the dream karen that he told me i was startled at the present and that fear increased when i heard that the exiles intended to come today to your house and i am very much afraid that we shall bring mighty mischiefs on ourselves yet do our enemies no proportionable harm but only give them little disturbance for i think the city signifies us and the castle as it is now in their power them then Diocrates putting in and enjoining silence on Karen, who was eager to reply, said, So my part, Hippocrates, to all my sacrifices were of good omen to the exiles. Yet I never found any greater inducement to go on than the dream you mentioned. For you say that a great and bright fire, rising out of a friend's house, caught the city, and the habitation of the enemies was blackened with smoke, which never brings anything better than tears and disturbance that inarticulate sounds broke out from her shows that none shall make any clear and full discovery only a blind suspicion shall arise and our design shall appear and have its desired effect at the same time and it is very natural that the diviner should find the sacrifices ill-omened for both their office and the victims belong not to the public but to the man in power whilst theocritus was speaking i said to hipposnidus whom did you send with this message for it was not long ago we will follow him indeed caphisius he replied it's unlikely for i must tell the truth that you should overtake him for he is upon the best horse in thebes we all know the man he is master of the horse to melon and melon from the very beginning hath made him privy to design and i observing him to be at the door said what Hippocrates, is it clido he that last year at juno's feast won the single horse race yes the very same who then continued i is he that stood a pretty while at the court gate and gazed upon us this hipposnidus turning about cried out clido by hercules i'll lay my life some unlucky accident has happened clido observing that we took notice of him came softly from the gate towards us and hipposnidus giving him a nod and bidding him deliver his message to the company for they were all sure friends and privy to the whole plot he began sir I know the man very well, and not finding you either at home or in the marketplace, I guess you were with them, and came directly hither to give you a full account of the present posture of affairs. You commanded me, with all possible speed, to meet the exiles upon the mountain, and accordingly I went home to take horse, and called for my bridle. My wife said it was mislaid, and stayed a long time in the history, tumbling about the things and pretending to look carefully after it. At last, when she had tried my patience, she confessed that her neighbor's wife had borrowed it at last night. This raised my passion, I chid her, and she began to curse and wish me a bad journey and as bad a return. All which curses, pray God, may fall upon her own head. At last my passions grew high, and I began to cudgel her, and presently the neighbors and women coming in, there was fine work, and so bruised that it was so much as I could do to come hither to desire you to employ another man, for I protest I am amazed and in a very bad condition. Upon this news we were strangely altered. Just before we were angry with the man that endeavoured to put it off. Now the time approaching, the very minute just upon us, 
and it being impossible to defer the matter, we found ourselves in great anxiety and perplexity. But I, speaking to Hippostinius and taking him by the hand, bade him be of good courage, for the gods themselves seemed to invite us to action. Presently we parted. Phileas went home to prepare his entertainment and to make Achaeus drunk as soon as conveniently he could. Charon went to his house to receive the exiles, and I and Eucritus went back to Simeus again, that, having now a good opportunity, we might discourse with Epimomonius. We found him engaged in a notable dispute, which Glexidorius and Philodolos had touched upon before. The subject of the inquiry was this. What kind of substance or power was the famed daemon of Socrates? Simeus replied to Glexidorius' discourse we did not hear. But he said that, having once asked Socrates about it, and received no answer, he never repeated the same question, but he had often heard him declare those to be vain pretenders, who said they had seen any divine apparition, while to those who affirmed that they had heard a voice he would gladly hearken, and would eagerly inquire into particulars. And this upon consideration gave us probable reasons to conjecture this demon of Socrates was not an apparition, but rather a sensible perception of a voice or an apprehension of some words, which, after an uncountable manner, affected him. As in the dream there is no real voice, yet we have fancies and apprehensions of words which makes us imagine that we hear some speak. This perception in dreams is usual, because the body, whilst we are asleep, is quiet and undisturbed, but when we are awake, meaner thoughts creep in. We can hardly bring our souls to observe better advertisements. For, being in a hurry of tumultuous passions and distracting business, we cannot compose our mind or make it listen to the discoveries. But Socrates' understanding, being pure, free from passion, and mixing itself with the body no more than necessity required, was easy to be moved and apt to take an impression from everything that was applied to it. Now, that which was applied was not a voice, but more probably a declaration of a daemon, by which he, the very thing that he would declare, was immediately and without audible voice represented to his mind. Voice is like a stroke given to the soul, which receives speech forcibly, entering at the ears whilst we discourse. But the understanding of a more excellent nature affects a capable soul, by applying the very thing to be understood to it, so that there is no need of another stroke, and the soul obeys, as it stretches or slackens her affections, not forcibly, as if it fraught by contrary or passions, but smoothly and gently, as if it moved flexible and loose reins. And sure, nobody can wonder at this, that have observed what great ships of burden are turned by a small helm, or seen a potter's wheel move round by the gentle touch of one finger. These are lifeless things, it is true. But being of a frame fit for motion, by reason of their smoothness, they yield to the least impulse. The soul of man, being stretched with a thousand inclinations, as with cords, is the most tractable instrument that is, and, if once rationally excited, easy to be moved to the object that it is to be conceived. For here the beginnings of the passions and appetites spread to the understanding mind and that being once agitated, they are drawn back again, and so stretch and raise the whole man. Hence, you may guess how great is the force of a conception when it hath entered the mind. 
for the bones that are insensible, the nerves, the flesh that is full of humours, and the heavy mass composed of all these, lying quiet and at rest as soon as the soul gives the impulse, and raises an appetite to move towards an object, are all roused and invigorated, and every member seems a wing to carry it forward to action. Nor is it impossible, or even very difficult to conceive the manner of this motion and stirring, by which the soul, having conceived anything, draweth after her, by means of appetites, the whole mass of the body, but inasmuch as language, apprehended without any sensible voice, easily excites, so, in my opinion, the understanding of a superior nature and a more divine soul may excite an inferior soul, touching it from without, like as one speech may touch and rouse another, and as a light causes its own reflection, we, it is true, as it were, groping in the dark, find out one another's conceptions by the voice, but the conceptions of the daemons carry a light with them, and shine to those that are able to perceive them. So there is no need of words such as men use as signs to one another, seeing thereby only the images of the conceptions, and being unable to see the conceptions themselves, unless they enjoy a peculiar and, as I said before, a divine light. This may be illustrated from the nature and effect of a voice, for the air being formed into articulate sounds and made all voice transmits the conception of the soul to the hearer, so that it is no wonder if the air is very apt to take impressions, being fashioned according to the object conceived by a more excellent nature, signifies that conception to some divine and extraordinary man. For as a stroke upon a brazen shield, when a noise arises out of a hollow, is heard only by those who are in a convenient position, and is not perceived by others. So the speech of the daemon, though indifferently applied to all, yet sound only to those who are of quiet temper and sedate mind, and such as we call holy and divine men. Most believe the daemons communicate some illuminations to men asleep, but think it strange and incredible that they should communicate the light to them whilst they are awake and have their senses and regions vigorous. As a wise a fancy as it is to imagine that a musician can use his harp when his strings are slack, but cannot play when they are all screwed up and in tune. For they do not consider that the effect is hindered by the unquietness and incapacity of their own minds, from which inconvenience our friend Socrates was free. As the oracle assured his father whilst he was a boy, for that commanded him to let young Socrates do what he would, not to force a drawing from his inclinations, let the boy's humour have its free course, to beg Jupiter's and the Muses' blessing upon him, and to take no farther care, intimating that he had a good guide to direct him, that was better than ten thousand tutors and instructors. This, Philodolos, was my notion of Socrates' daemon. Whilst he lived, and since his death, I look upon all they mention about omens, sneezings, or the like, to be dreams and fooleries. But what I heard Timarchus discourse upon the same subject, lest some should think I delight in fables, perhaps it is best to conceal. By no means, cried Theocritus, let's have it. For though they are, do not perfectly agree with it, yet I know many fables that border upon truth. But pray first tell us who this Timocharchus was, for never was acquainted with the man. Very likely, Theocritus, said Simeus, for he died when I was very young, 
and desired Socrates to bury him by Lampocles, son of Socrates, who was his dear friend of the same age, and died on many days before him, he being eager to know, for as a fine youth and a beginner in philosophy, what Socrates' daemon was, acquainting none but Cabus and me with his design, went down into Dauphinius' cave and performed all the ceremonies that were requisite to gain an oracle. There he stayed two nights and one day, so that his friends despaired of his return and lamented him as lost. But the next morning he came out with a very cheerful countenance, and having adored the god and freed himself from the thronging inquisitive crowd, he told us many wonderful things he had seen and heard, for this was his relation. End of section 29